0: morning is from Romans chapter 8, and this is quite a wonderful chapter. It's a familiar chapter to us, and it's a very comforting chapter. Passage is Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governing, govern, excuse me, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory.
1: Thank you, Andy. Uh, Before we begin here, I do want to give my own plug, my own little emphasis here for this event that we have coming up that Randy has already mentioned, this family night, October 12th, 7 p.m. I really would love to invite all of you, especially those of you who have children. I'll just put it this way. If you love your children, you will come to this. uh, Okay, that's maybe a little over the top, but... Uh, Really, I think that this is something you will really benefit from. This is probably the kind of thing where years from now, you will look back and be grateful that you came uh, just in terms of what you have learned and in terms of, of, I think, helping you to, to, to set a framework for knowing how is it to raise your children in an environment that can really help them to come to know the Lord. So I think it would really be valuable for you to come. So whatever it takes for you to, to be there. Uh, if you, you know, have tickets to you know, a Jets game or something like that, not that they ever play on Friday night, not that anybody really knows when they play because who really cares, right? Um, but Sorry. Sorry. Look, my, my ears as a Patriots fan, I've got I've to go for it because those days are ending um, and the Jets are going to get good. Anyway, my point is whatever you have going on on that Friday night, it's, you should cancel it. Um, I, you know, maybe, maybe you're even getting married. I'm telling you, postpone the wedding because this is going to help you. This is going to help you later on in your marriage if you come. So I would just really encourage you to come That's Friday, September 12th at 7 p.m. With that, will you all bow your heads and pray with me before we get into this passage? Dear God, we thank you so much for the gift of who you are. God, that you are the greatest gift that there is. There are so many wonderful gifts that we have uh, in this life, so many wonderful things that you have given us, but the greatest of all is you. And I pray that this morning we would become more and more aware of that. Lord, as we sing in that song, this morning we become more aware of your presence. Uh, God, that you are here with us and you are working in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. So we are continuing in this series on the book of Romans, which we began, I don't even know how many weeks ago. It is a series that is going through the letter of Romans. The, the letter of Romans is a letter. It was written by a man named Paul about 20, 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing it to the Christian communities in the city of Rome. And, of course, what we've seen is that the main theme of this letter is the good news, and he's getting at the good news of Jesus, that we live in a world where there's a lot of bad news, and it seems like it just goes from bad to worse when you see the news these days, and the reality is, is that throughout various times in history, that's how people felt as well. I think in in Paul's day, certainly, there was a lot of of bad news as well, and so this letter is incredibly refreshing, because Paul is coming to say, yeah, in the midst of a world where we experience a lot of bad news. We experience a lot of bad news on the grand scale of things, whether it's the headlines uh, that you see on the news or whether it's the the news that you receive maybe from a doctor. Maybe it's the news that you receive uh, about a friend or a relative. Maybe it's bad news that you hear at work. We hear a lot of bad news. And so this this right here, Paul is coming along and he's saying, in the midst of a world where there is a lot of bad news, the heart of the Christian faith is good news. It's good news. And and so what we've basically been doing, because this is what Paul essentially is doing, is unpacking what is this good news? What is the good news of Christianity? What, what is the good news of Jesus? And of course, what we've seen and throughout this letter, and you find this throughout the scriptures, is of course at the very center of this good news is this simple truth that God has come to forgive us of our sin. Very straightforward, very simple. God has come to forgive us of our sin. And and it, it pops up here again in the first verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? This idea, there is no condemnation, there is no no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus, that God forgives us, that because of what Christ has done, he forgives us. This is the central truth of the Christian faith. Now, of course, for that to be good news, um, you, you have to recognize you need to be forgiven in the first place, right? I mean, the reality is, if you don't think you've done anything wrong then, okay, well, thanks, thank you for forgiving me. I'm not sure why I need that, right? And so what you discover is that early on in chapters one and chapter two, Paul goes to great length exploring and helping us to understand why it is that we need this forgiveness, why it is that we need this grace. It's this, these, these first couple chapters are really rather humbling, which is precisely the point. And when you come to the Christian faith, the number one thing, the number one quality of a person who really has come to begin to understand the heart of the good news. This is a person who is humbled. This is a person who acknowledges their own sin. This is a person who is keenly aware of their own sin. And I think that 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 it, you might say that comes in contrast maybe to here's where I would want to compare somebody who really really is beginning to get the gospel uh, versus a religious person, a merely religious person. The more religiously, a religious person will have a tendency to be keenly aware of the sins of other people, They're keenly aware of the offenses of other people, whereas those who under- appreciate the gospel, though certainly they see that as well, they are drawn to and they are focused on and they, they, they are able to, to see into their own hearts and see the problem there, that their focus is, is, is mostly on themselves in recognizing their own brokenness. This humility is the basic posture with which we approach God. And when we come to him with that, when we come to him acknowledging our own faults, we find a God of grace, a God who forgives us a God of mercy. Again, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Here we get this tremendous truth that Christ came as a sin offering. When you look at the Old Testament Scriptures, of course, a sin offering, an animal would be given, and essentially the animal would be sacrificed, and the idea is that that animal is being sacrificed instead of you. That you you are the one who has sinned, you are the one who is in debt, you are the one who who owes that, you should pay the price for that. And so the idea is that that, that you, you bring the animal, and the animal becomes a substitute for you. But there's this payment that needs to be made. And so the the idea here, the idea is what God has done, God, God has become the one who actually takes that for you. That in the book of Hebrews, it says that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They were always pointing to, they were pointing forward to this time when God himself would come and absorb the weight of our, of our own sin. I mean, you sort of think of it this way, the, the fact that forgiveness, you see, forgiveness always involves absorbing the weight of an offense, absorbing what you don't deserve. That's always what forgiveness requires. I mean, so think of it this way, right? So, so maybe you have a, a friend or a relative, maybe a little brother or a cousin who's always getting themselves into trouble, right? They're always getting themselves into trouble, and so they're always coming to you and, hey, I can't pay my rent, right? My, my, I'm going to get kicked out of my apartment if I don't pay my rent, and, and it's, you're like, well, this is, you know, this is yours. You're the one that owes this, but if you, out of grace and mercy, if you give them that rent money, what you have done is you have taken, you have absorbed their debt upon yourself. And the idea at the very heart of the Christian faith is that that is what God has done for us. God is that sin. In the person of Jesus, God himself came to absorb the weight of our own sin, that that no matter what you have done. So I, I say this to those of you, many of you whom I know well, many of you whom maybe I'm just beginning to get to know, maybe even some of you whom I have known for many years, but maybe there are things that that I don't know, maybe things that you have not actually told a number of people. I want you to know that whatever it is, we have a God who loves you so much that if you confess that before him, he died to forgive you of that. And that is why we are all welcome here. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, you're welcome at the foot of the cross. That is the very heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus came To forgive us. But guess what? That's not all Jesus came to do. (laughs) Jesus didn't just come to forgive us. In fact, you might even say, that's the first act. You ever gone to a play? You're like, oh my gosh, that was so fantastic. Oh, let's go. Okay, Honey, that was so beautiful. Let's go home. She's like, that was just the first act. Oh. Oh. You see, I think a lot of us, for the Christian faith, forgiveness is the whole deal. And, and, and believe me, if you just get the first act, you've got a pretty great show. But there's more than just the first act. There's another act too. And that is that, that God, listen to this, God did not, come just to forgive us he came to put his spirit in us he didn't just come to forgive us he came to put his spirit in us, he didn't just come to forgive us so that at some point we can die and go to heaven he came not only to forgive us but to bring heaven to us now God didn't just come to forgive us, but to put his spirit in us. And that's why when you get to chapter 8, you know, it's almost like like Paul has just been waiting to get here, because he virtually never even mentions the spirit in the first seven chapters. I mean, he talks about so many different things, and he virtually never mentions the spirit, and if so, it's always just in passing. And then here in chapter 8, it's just the spirit, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. What Paul wants us to see here is that God did not just come to forgive us, but to put his spirit in us. In fact, we discover that as far as Paul is concerned, that's actually the mark of a Christian. A Christian is a person in whom God has put his spirit. That's what we find in verse uh, 9, if I mark this right here. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So he's making this very clear, that what marks out a, a person as a Christian is that they have the Spirit of God within them, that that's what marks them out. That it, that there's so many other things that we might associate with what it means to be a Christian, And Paul says, look, you can just break it down very simply to this. A Christian, a person who belongs to Christ, is a person in whom God has put his spirit. It's not necessarily a person who comes to church or reads their Bible, serves on the worship team, serves in... uh, in the children's ministry. In fact, Paul, in the book of Philippians, he directly addresses this issue. In Philippians, he's basically, he's addressing this issue of those who think that simply by virtue of their religious practices, that's what marks them out as a member of God's people. And, and what he goes on to say is, he says, he says, we are the circumcision, and their circumcision is code for we are the people of God. And this, guess what he says? He says, those who worship God by his spirit and so Paul's saying that a mark of a Christian is a person in whom God has put his spirit. Now, I think we have to be really careful here because I don't think what Paul is doing here in Romans, his goal here is is he's not trying to, to get into the church in Rome and start questioning everybody's faith. That's not what he's trying to do. He's not, he's, not, he's not trying to bring out this, you know, trying to create this culture where everybody's questioning who's in and who's out and who has the spirit and who doesn't have the spirit. I don't think he's trying to create He's not trying to create that kind of culture because actually what you discover in Paul's letters over and over again is that his M.O., and we'll discover this as we we get a little bit further here, his M.O. is is not so much to question whether or not the Spirit is in someone, but rather to question why they're not living in light of that truth. When he's addressing the Christian community, his M.O. is it's not so much I'm not sure the Spirit's in you, it's why are you not living in light of the fact that it's the spirit is in you. That's the MO with which he operates. He's not trying to create a culture where everybody's wondering who does and doesn't have the spirit. We need to understand that. He's just making this very simple point, right, that this, this, is, what, this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to forgive us and then put his spirit in us, that God's spirit becomes available to be in us because of what Christ has done. Now, a question I'd like us to sort of address then here this morning with the time that we have remaining is this. Because this, this is what Paul is, 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 is getting at throughout this passage is really this: What can happen? What can happen when God puts His spirit in us? What can happen when God puts his spirit in us? I'm going to look at three things. The first thing is that when God puts His spirit in us. God can become very close and personal, not distant and impersonal. Again, it's the idea that he's he's putting his spirit in us. He says this over and over again in verses, well, 14 through 16, but then really throughout the whole passage, this idea that the spirit is in you, in you. We see this phrase all the time. Uh, Verse uh, 14 through 16, is this the one I want to read here? No, that's right. I knew that was right. Verses 9 and 10 and 11. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And then again, verse 10, if Christ is in you. And then verse 11, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. On and on and on again, he's talking about the spirit of God being in you. He wants you to get this idea. He wants you to understand that what Christ came to do is to make God so incredibly close to you. That when we profess faith in Christ, God becomes closer to us than anything or anyone. I don't know about you, but I, I, I like to be close to people. I'm a, I'm a hugger, right? Sometimes it's awkward for some people, especially when they first get to know me. It's a little bit awkward. But I, I like to be close to people. And my family, I really love to be close to I love to be close to my wife. I love to be close to my kids. I just love, I don't know about you, but this is one of the things that I've discovered with my kids. It's like I just... It's like I can't get close enough. I get as close as I possibly can. I'm I'm hugging them. I'm squeezing them. I'm kissing them. I'm practically suffocating them. I just love to be close to them. The heart of the Christian faith is that when we profess faith in Christ, the Spirit of God is the closest, closer than any relationship, closer than anything in your life. Right now, Think about who's close to you. God is even closer. No matter where you go, no matter where you are, God is so close. Paul wants us to see that, that when when we profess faith in Christ, when God puts his spirit in us, God becomes very close. Not not distant. Not something in, 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 in the heavens. Right? We look up to God. Well, you can look into God because God is in you. He's close. And then, of course, related to that is that God is personal. God is personal. He, he, he's, he's close, not distant, and he is personal, not impersonal. Verses 14 through 16, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And you could translate this, the way the language worked there would be very fair to say, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. That's what the language is getting at. When you have the Spirit in you, you become a son and a daughter, a son or a daughter of God, that you have a a personal relationship with God. And then it uses this word Abba, Abba, this intimate word, for those of you who receive, uh, those for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba. Reminds me of, of my kids, they're, they're at this age now, you know, when they were really little, they didn't really get scared, they just fussed, and they might in the middle of the night, cry, and it's probably because they're hungry or need to go to the bathroom or something like that. But now they're at this age now where they've they've started to understand fear. And so it's not all that infrequent when three in the morning, oh, here, one of my kids getting out of bed and running down the hallway because they're scared. And they'll come and they'll climb into bed with us, and immediately that fear goes away when they're with their father, when they're with their mother, Abba, Father, it's this intimacy that you have with a child. This is what God is saying can happen when he puts his spirit in you. That when you are scared, when you are frightened with whatever it is that you're facing today, you can run to your father. You can run to the father perhaps that you never had, I'm keenly aware of the fact that my hope and my prayer is that for me, as I am a father to my children, that that will be something that they will see and it will ultimately point them to their their even truer father, their heavenly father. And I really hope that's true because I know I've made a lot of mistakes. And I know I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. And so my hope and my prayer is that they'll get a taste of it But they will realize there there is a father who loves them more than I ever can. If you're here today, I know some people, as I talk to, don't always have the best relationship with their father. And so, friends, this is good news. Because you have a father who loves you, who wants to be personal. When God puts his spirit in you, he becomes close and personal. That's the first thing that can happen when God puts his spirit in you. Secondly, when God puts his spirit in you, what is dead comes alive. When God puts his spirit in you, what can happen is that what is dead comes alive. Verse 11 Again, we see here, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now, when Paul talks about the spirit taking that which is dead and bringing it to life, he is talking about it, and it emerges throughout his writings um, coming in really two different ways. There are two aspects to the way in which the spirit brings that which is dead to life. And it's two aspects which we find throughout Paul's writing. It affects all of his thinking, and that is that there is a future aspect and there is a present aspect to this. That that the spirit in which it makes that which is dead alive in you is, and here's the word, it is eschatological. It is eschatological. And, And what that means is that there is a present and a future dimension to this. When God puts his spirit in you, it points to something in the future. And what it points to in the future is this incredible reality that God is going to raise you from the dead. Paul says it very explicitly in, in the verse 11. It's sort of unclear whether he's talking about the present or the future. But, but in verse 23, which we'll actually be looking at more next week, he says this. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There Paul is anticipating this day when God will raise us from the dead. He's like, wait a minute, why is God going to do that? Why would God raise us from the dead? Because that's what Jesus, that's what happened to Jesus. It's very simple, really. What happened to Jesus is what God is going to do for all who put their faith in Jesus. My family, we find ourselves driving down Forest Avenue from time to time. And we go by, uh, uh, oh, what is it, Cedar Park, Cedar Park Cemetery. And <laughs> my kids are at this age now where they understand, at least they have a concept of death, and they're fascinated by it. And so we'll drive along, and not just the other day, one of them just said, whoa, look at all those dead people. A a, a kid might say that. I notice, you know, I don't really hear a lot of adults saying that. I think that when we we drive by cemeteries, we try to change the conversation, right? Maybe maybe there's something. Look at that house on the other side of the road. Isn't that a nice house? we We don't really... We don't really like to think or talk about death, although my wife says that the Hanleys love to talk about death. I don't know why she says that, but she says that about my family. But I feel a little bit vindicated here when I look at this passage. But most people, I think the reality is that when we go by a cemetery, we don't want to talk about that. I mean, I've never thought about this. I mean, I was going to look into this a little bit, but, you know, when somebody is looking to buy a house, And what are they looking to have in the neighborhood, you know? Oh, you know, we want to be close to the school. Hopefully it'll be within walking distance for our children. Uh, We would love to be somewhere that's, you know, we love the library. We'd love to be close to a library. To us, we would pay extra to be able to go to the library. You know, if we could get a house with a really nice view, Maybe a view of the Hudson, boy, wouldn't that be fantastic? I mean, has anybody ever said, boy, we're looking for a house that's really close to a cemetery? No? But we shouldn't be afraid for our house to be next to a cemetery. Because you know what a cemetery can remind you of? Cemetery can remind you of Easter. As a Christian, every time you see a cemetery, you should think of Easter. Every time you see a cemetery, you should be thinking, "Mm, I need to go get my Easter dress. Every time you see a cemetery, you should be thinking, are we going to do turkey or ham this year? Oh, I can't wait for Easter. When you see a cemetery, you don't see death. You see something that points to the reality That God one day is going to raise those who have put their faith in him from the dead to eternal life. When God puts his spirit in us, what can happen? The dead becomes alive. And there's, there's an eschatological dimension to that. There's a future dimension to that, right? The cemetery reminds you that that has not happened yet. That's not yet. But there is also the already, there is an already aspect to which God takes that which is dead and brings it to life. Let me see that again in verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. You see, we, we got to back up here. We've got to remember what has happened in the passage that immediately precedes it. We go back and we find this passage that, that I think so many of us can resonate with. Back in chapter 7, because basically what Paul says, and he's talking about, he uses the, the personal pronoun I. He says, I am this way, but what he's really saying is that all of humanity is this way. And what he basically says over and over again is, I want to get my act together, but I can't get my act together. Can anybody resonate with that? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You want to get your act together, but you just can't. You want to do the things that the Lord tells us we should do because we trust that the things that God tells us to do will lead to life. We want to be patient. We want to be kind. We want to be selfless. We want to do all of these things. We want to get our act together, but we just can't. How many of us can resonate with that? And then Paul goes on and on and on and on and on. I find this law at work in me for what, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man am I. How many of us can resonate with this? We, we want to do what is good, but it seems like there is something pulling at us. There is something almost, it seems almost like it's out of our control that hinders us from doing that which we want to do. You want to be kind. To you. You've had a tough day. You're coming home from work. You want to be really kind and loving to your wife and to your children, but when you come home, you're just, I mean, you want to be good, but you just can't. Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then again, this is what leads into our chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And then again, jumping ahead. So he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. And here's what Paul is saying in those four verses. There's really, when he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's saying there's no condemnation, one, because God has forgiven you and will forgive you of your sin, and two, because you're gonna start walking in the ways of the law. You're gonna start doing what's right. He never says it's going to be perfect, but he's saying you'll begin. The Spirit can't. The Spirit can begin to enable you to walk in accordance with the law. The Spirit can work in you and enable you to get your your acts together. Let me just ask again this question, and, and I think maybe this is a good way of putting it. How many of us feel stuck? with regards to some area of our life. There's some area of our life where we, we just can't get our acts together, and we feel stuck. How many of us can resonate with that? There are many ways in which we can get stuck. Maybe for some of us it's something like anger. You find yourself, you're just stuck in anger. That you you, you, you try, you've tried so much to control your anger, and it just, it just continues to come out. You're just, you're just stuck in it. Maybe you're somebody who's easily offended, and when you get offended, then you just immediately jump at them, or, or maybe you're a person who gets offended when somebody else gets offended. You ever seen that? So, so somebody gets offended, and then the person that, have, they're offended that they're offended, and then they're, they're offended that they're offended that they're offended. That they're offended. Right? Maybe that's you. You find yourself, you're just, you're, you're, you're always getting offended, and so you're always getting angry. And you're sort of stuck in that. Maybe for you, you you find yourself that when it comes to criticism, here's what it is. You're bad at receiving criticism. You're really good at giving it. And you know that that's not a way you live. That's That's not the way to life. You're really bad at receiving criticism, but you're really good at giving it. I mean, how many of us can resonate with that? We're, we're really quick to be critical, but the minute somebody's critical of us, it's very difficult for us to take that. And we know that, but we're stuck in it. I mean, let's just put it at its, its, its most basic. How many of us are stuck in selfishness? And, and here's a test. Here's how you can tell if you're stuck in selfishness. Here's what it is. A person who is stuck in selfishness is a person who can't find joy unless they get what they want. How many of us feel like that? You just, I mean, you can find joy. Yeah, I can be a happy person as long as I get what I want. I I think that's a a way of understanding what selfishness is. A selfish person is a person who can't find joy unless they get what they want. They can't find joy unless they get to watch what they want to watch on TV. They they can't find joy unless they get to have for dinner what they want for dinner. They can't find joy unless they get to do on Friday night what they want to do on Friday night. They can't find joy unless they get to live where they want to live. They can't find joy unless they have the car that they want to drive. They can't find joy unless they have that position in their career, that particular role, if they go to work and they don't get what they want, they can't find joy, That's what selfishness is, a selfish person, I mean, look, this is me, I I, I mean, you know, I come up with these because I just look at myself, right? So easy, I find myself, like, you're only finding joy when you get what you want and you're stuck in that self. Friends, the heart of the gospel, actually, is that when God puts his spirit in us, we can begin to be set free from that. God can begin to release us from our bondage to these things. When God puts his spirit in us, he becomes close and personal. First thing, when God puts his spirit in us, he can begin to take that which is dead and make it alive. And finally, when God puts his spirit in us, we can begin to change the world around us. When God puts his spirit in us, we can begin to genuinely make a difference in this world. And ultimately, the way this passage gets at this is we we find this here in, in verses 15 through 17. Look what it says here. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. What he's saying here, and this is pointing back to all, to all the passages in the Old Testament when it talks about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah will come. He will reign and rule. He will have dominion over all of creation. And what we actually discovered, the role, the goal of the Messiah is to bring renewal and restoration to all things. That's what it means for Christ to come. That's what it means for the Messiah to reign is that he comes and he begins to change things. He undoes, he undoes the brokenness that is running through the very fabric of our world. He undoes that and brings renewal and restoration to all things. And so when Paul says we are co-heirs with Christ, what he's saying is that we become enabled to join Christ in bringing renewal and restoration in all things. When God puts his spirit in us, we can begin to bring change in this world, to make a difference in this world. And of course, Jesus talks about this in his own ministry in a number of different ways. He talks about being salt and being light. When God puts his spirit in us, it enables us to be salt and light. And I love the imagery of salt because, of course, it carries a number of different connotations with it, but But salt, you know, salt just gives flavor to things. I don't know about you, but I feel like we live in a world where there's, everybody's hungering for flavor. The irony of it is we we have so many things that are supposed to be flavorful. We we have more than we could ever need. We have so many things that, that should spice up our life. We can look to... We can look to entertainment, we can look to drugs, we can look to to success, we can look to materialism, we look to all of these things. But wouldn't you say, isn't it true that that even in America where we have really more than anybody else, there's still this sense in which everything's just kind of blah. I mean, no matter how much you have, it's just, it's bland, and I think what, Christ is getting it. When we become the salt of the earth, we we become that flavor. We give flavor to this world. When people see us and they're like, what is it with that person? There's something about them. There's something about them. They have this joy about them that doesn't seem to coincide with what's going on around them. You see, simply by, by finding our joy in the Spirit, we become the very salt and the light which brings renewal and restoration into this world. And we begin to think that way. We begin to think, this is what I'm here for. Right? When God begins to, to work in us, we, we, we begin to see how through the Spirit working in us, we can bring genuine change into this world. And what's so, I think so important about this is when it talks about Christ reigning over all things, him taking dominion over his kingdom, he operates through the power of the spirit. This is so important. As Christians, what we use to bring change in this world is the power of the spirit working in us and in the things that we do. In other words, we don't look to other forms of power to bring change. We don't, we don't, depend on worldly power as that which will bring change into our world. And Jesus is addressing this all the time. In fact, one of the primary things he had to deal with in first century Palestine was those who thought that the way they would bring the kingdom of God was through political means. They were expecting Jesus to be this Messiah, right? If you're the king of the Jews, they're expecting him to rise to power to become a political leader who through the power of political means is able to bring change. And, and Jesus rebukes him for this. He rebukes the, the, the first century Jews for thinking this way. He says, "No, that's, that's not how I'm going to bring change. Friends, I have to wonder sometimes if many Christians in America are suffering from the same problem that first century Palestinian Jews did. Is it possible that some of us Christians in America, we, we, are, we are almost too dependent. We are too dependent on political means as a way of trying to bring change into our world. Of course, as Christians living in a democracy, certainly we we want to be able to use our freedom to vote to to help bring change. But when when we start almost relying on that and even beginning to compromise some of our own values in order to get political power to bring change, that's precisely the kind of thing that Jesus was rebuking the first century Jews for. We need to remember that the change that we bring to this world comes not through worldly power but through the power of the spirit. To the power of the Spirit working in me, working in you, beginning to bring change. Right, you know, I, I think another way of putting it is, is that the way the Spirit brings change in this world is through the Spirit bringing change in your world through you. Jesus brought change in this world just simply by starting with, with 12 disciples and then it just spread. He started by just changing, just Just in in the land of Palestine, just in that area a little bit here, helping someone there, healing somebody there, caring for somebody there, that's the way in which he brings change. So friends, I want to ask you this. How might God be leading you to bring change in this world? Who are the people? Who are the people in your sphere at work, in your neighborhood? We bring change in this world by bringing change to your world. And we do this because God has put his spirit in us. So these are the three things. These are three things I think we, we sort of emerge from this. When God puts his spirit in us, there are these three things that can happen. God becomes close and personal. That which is dead comes to life. And we can begin to bring change in this world. But here's what we need to realize. In order for these things to happen, we must Let the Spirit lead. God has put His Spirit in us, and all of these things can happen through us, but it doesn't happen automatically. When God puts His Spirit in us, what we need to realize is that for all of these things to happen, we have to let the Spirit lead. We see this. This emerges in verses 12 through 14. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This idea of being led by the Spirit. Now, what we need to realize, we need to go back and realize that Paul, in this passage, as he has been doing throughout, really, most of the book of Romans, especially in chapters six through eight, but even going back to five, he's really retelling the narrative of the story of Israel, but he's retelling it through the lens of Christ. In other words, what he's doing is he's retelling the story of the people of Israel, but he's retelling it for the Christian community as a way of saying that when you put your faith in me, you become the fulfillment of that entire Old Testament narrative, that you become, by virtue of your faith in Christ, you become the people of God. You are grafted into that. We'll see that later on in in the book of Romans. But what he's saying is that that the Christians, we take on that heritage. And so then what we discover, chapter 6, he talks like this. In chapter 6, he talks about how we are slaves to sin, But we are, through Christ, we are baptized into Christ, baptized into Christ and become slaves to righteousness. So he uses this imagery of being in slavery and then going through water to be taken out of slavery. Of course, what is Paul alluding to? He's alluding to the Exodus. He's alluding to the people of Israel who were enslaved in, in Egypt and then they went through the Red Sea and through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea they were delivered. And he's saying in the same sense, we are slaves to sin, but when we are baptized into Christ, we are freed from that. And then in chapter seven, he talks about the law. He talks about his relationship with the commandments, how God has these commandments that he's given and, and he talks about the struggles and the challenges of the law. And of course, right there, he's just paralleling. When the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, they came out and they went to Mount Sinai and they were given the law. So chapter seven parallels the coming of the commandments with Moses. And then we come into chapter eight. We come into chapter eight and what is he talking about? He's talking about the spirit of God working in us. Because right after the giving of the law, what happens? The spirit of God came. The Spirit of God came, the, the, the pillar of fire at night, the cloud, the Spirit by day, which led the people of Israel through the wilderness and led them into their inheritance. Paul says that through the Spirit working in us, it leads us into the inheritance. And so Paul, as he writes this, he has in mind the people of Israel walking through the wilderness, being led by the Spirit. If you know that story, what we discover is the Israelites needed to let the Spirit lead them. It's not enough that the Spirit came. They've got to let the Spirit lead them. If they are to go into the promised land, and in the same sense, and in the same sense, all of these things that God can bring, all of these things the Spirit can do in us, they happen when we let the Spirit lead Another way of saying that, folks, is that following Jesus, professing faith in Jesus is not a one-time decision. It is an everyday decision. Following Jesus is not a one-time decision. It is an everyday decision. You might say that, that The decision to follow Jesus like everything else in our understanding of the kingdom of God is eschatological. In other words, there is an already and not yet sense even to our decision to follow Christ. In one sense, yes, I presently profess faith in Christ, but there's always that not yet sense. There's that not yet sense which every day we make that decision to follow Christ We make that decision to let the Spirit lead. Another way of saying that is that following Christ is a battle. Every day it's a battle. Every day it's a battle to let the Spirit lead. Every day it is a battle to let God be close and personal. Is that not true? Every day we have to fight for that. Every day we have to struggle and fight to let the Spirit of God make God close and personal to us. I know this is true for me. I'm speaking out of personal experience. I am a person just by nature. I am prone to doubt. I am prone to doubt the presence of God working in my life. I'm prone to doubt sometimes whether God's there or not. That's my natural inclination. When when the sinful nature pulls at me, that's where my mind goes. I doubt the whole thing. It is a struggle. It is a battle every day to let the Spirit lead. It's a battle to let the Spirit lead us to realize that God is close and personal. It is a battle every day to let the Spirit make that which is dead come alive. Another way of saying that is this I think we need to ask ourselves this question Do we really want to grow? Do we really want to change? Is that something that's even on our radar screen? Do, do we want to grow, or are we just sort of settled with being forgiven? Do we want God to work in us? Do we want God to change us? Or maybe another way of putting it is, is do we spend more time justifying our actions than we do seeking to change them? What do we do? Do we spend more time justifying the way that we're living our lives than evaluating the way that we're living our lives and asking ourselves, maybe this is something that God wants to change in me? I mean, do we spend our time thinking about how we can change the world, or do we spend most of our time thinking about what we can get out of this world? What do we spend most of our time doing? When we get up in the morning, are we thinking, what can I get out of this day? What can I get to work well for me? You see, it's a battle because as the Spirit works in us, that's, if we let the Spirit lead us, our way of thinking will change and it becomes not what can I get out of this day, not what can I get from this world, but what can I do to bring change in this world? But it's a battle, it's an everyday battle. Paul actually says this He says we have an obligation. We have an obligation, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature, but to the spirit. Now, here's what's so amazing about when he says we have an obligation. Paul isn't saying, Paul isn't saying we have an obligation, we owe we owe this to God, and if we do this, then he will save us. That's how a lot of us would think. As soon as you hear some, the word obligation, we, we are obliged to do something for God immediately. And I don't know if it's just because we sort of live in the post-medieval world where everything's about finding your way to get yourself saved. But as soon as you hear the word obligation, you think, oh, my gosh, I'm obliged to do something in order to get God to save me. But what we realize, what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. No, you're obliged to do this because he already has. He already has. This is, this is taking place. He said there's no condemnation because those who are in Christ Jesus because the Spirit of God, he's come for you. You've already been saved. So it's, it's the, here's the kind of obligation he's talking about. It's the kind of obligation that I had to my friend Steve Tizer 25 years ago when I went camping and got stranded in the wilderness, went rafting with three guys. We wake up on the last day of this multi-day rafting camping extravaganza. We wake up and there's like three inches of snow on the ground and it's just dumping snow. And we get in the boat and we are we're we're, we're like we're just you know trying to get through this wind and the snow. We can't we get out, we can't find the car. We don't know where we're going to go. We're like wandering through the wilderness. Just we actually found like a cabin where we, we took our shoes off and rubbed each other's feet because they were starting to get frostbitten. I mean it was it was literally one of these like I thought I literally did think I was gonna die. And so finally we got to we, we finally made it to some road and we managed to walk, and this is before cell phones. We finally got to a payphone and we called our friend Steve Tyson and said, hey, can you come pick us up? And he didn't say, yeah, it's going to cost you. He got in his car and he he drove as fast as he could and he picked us up. And when we got in the car, guess what we said to him? Boy, Steve, we owe you. The sense of obligation. The sense of gratitude. Not that we had to do something to get him to come rescue us, but this sense of obligation because he already had The heart of the Christian faith is that God has already rescued you. When we put faith in him, we are delivered, we are set free, and now we have this obligation, and it is an obligation of gratitude. God, I love you. God, thank you for rescuing me. Use me, free me, deliver me, shape me, because you have already rescued me. So friends, I'm just gonna leave you with this very simple question this morning. Are you going to let the Spirit lead you? In whatever area of your life where you are not letting the Spirit lead you, I would encourage you to reflect upon that. What is it? What is that area of your life where you're not letting the Spirit the Spirit leads you because that an. is, you're only hindering yourself. You're only holding yourself back. You're only hindering yourself from experiencing the freedom that God wants to give us. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for the gift of the Spirit. Praise you that you are a God who loves us so much. We praise you that you are a God who has not just left us here to try to figure things out on our own. You are a God who loves us. You are a God who desires to give us the fullness of life. God, I pray we would submit to you, we would surrender ourselves to you. God, we would recognize that we have you in us and help us to see that that is all that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We now come to our time of response. There are a number of ways in which you can respond. You can respond just by sitting there. Perhaps you want to pray. Just turn in.